Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. So let me begin without any scripture reading yet. When I finally get down to reading some scripture, we, we will be in the 18th chapter of Acts. But let me begin by making this opening comment. Theology is like spinach. Now, how, how many of you people like spinach? How many of you people like the gloppy green stuff in a can? Oh, we've got, we got a few of them. How many of you like whale blubber? Okay, I've hit on something here that we can all relate to. It may be good for you, <laughs> or it may not, I don't know. It's good for somebody, but it, it's necessary. Well, regardless of whether you do or don't, I, I like canned spinach. I know I described it, but I'm one of those weirdos that I like about anything that doesn't move on my plate. <clears throat> but theology is something that is necessary, but we don't always like it. As a matter of fact, even as I've said that word, I wonder if some people are recoiling this morning. Because we will be dealing with theology as we get into 1 Corinthians. But I promise you I'm going to do everything in my power that this is not going to dry out and die on the vine. I'm really going to try and keep you engaged in this. I don't want to scare you by using that word theology. But N.T. Wright, one of the uh, most noted scholars in the field, says that Paul invented, and he uses that word, Christian theology. Now, Paul wrote several letters. Uh, we call them the epistles, Pauline epistles, if you were from England, Pauline epistles. And he developed, invented Christ, Christian theology in, in doing this. Before Paul did this, there was no Christian theology. There was some theology. The ancient Greeks had theology, and as a matter of fact, uh, once again, according to N.T. Wright, uh, theology from the Greeks was kind of a, a subset of physics because physics was the, st the study of everything that exists. And in their mind, God existed. So under that title of physics, you had the study of theology, which was uh, comments about God. But it was very limited because you understand from Greek mythology their opinion of God. There were many gods, and, and they would have different duties that they did, and they were usually angry about something. And those gods generally, for the most part, came into being because of some tragic, immoral cataclysm that created them, which would be incestuous or rape or something. All these gods, according to the Greeks and mythology, came into violent uh, existence, or the existence as a result of something violent that happened. That was their theology, of God. And, uh, of course, as I said, Jesus didn't develop theology, certainly not to the depth that Paul did. Uh, the teachings of Jesus are absolutely priceless, but in three short years, uh, during which he produced no writings, you understand, Paul wrote, but we have nothing that Jesus wrote, except he wrote in the dirt on the ground one time, and that was gone with the next wind or rain. So we have no preservation of what he wrote. And the Jews of old, they, they didn't have... Surprisingly, much theology at all. 
they were not concerned with posing these questions about who God is and what he was like. They were more concerned with just, here's how we best serve him. But there wasn't a lot of theology developed even about God from the Old Testament. So that's why the, Paul's writings are so valuable to us. Because having now gone through the, the Beatitudes as a series and hearing uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the rich teachings of Jesus about what it means to be a follower of his... And also having now gone through the complete gospel of John and hearing John's perspective of who Jesus is and hearing John testify to the teachings of Jesus and what it means to follow him. Now we get into the writings of Paul where Paul takes those things and develops in them into the concept of discovering more about God. Jesus revealed himself to be the Son of God and, and, and uh, mentioned things that he, his father expects of him and what he does to please his father, but he didn't develop a lot about what is God like or what does God expect of me. So if we'd have been left without the epistles, Paul's writings, Peter's uh, uh, epistles, John's three books, uh, where would we be in understanding what it means for us as born-again Christians who have put our faith in the risen Christ who believe that he came and declared the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand, it's being established. How would we know how to live in view of that if we hadn't have had an extensive effort of writing and describing what it means to be a Christian? So thank God for Paul. Theology grows people. And let me say, Paul in his writings was not catechistic. Don't let me throw you with a $10 term. What I mean is, Paul did not simply write down black and white, do this and don't do this. Paul was theological, not catechistic. So in other words, in theology, we develop, we grow. You don't grow by catechism. You just either obey it or you don't. Theology grows you. The more you know about the Bible, understand what God says and why he said it and what he expects of us, the more we grow, as opposed to a list of of Paul, just, Paul could have just put out a list and say, here's what you do and here's what you don't do. We would never grow by that standard. So, you know, we as parents, we instruct our children what to do and what not to do, but our whole goal in doing this is we hope one of these days they get it because the kids are almost robotic in what we teach them for several years. I think you recognize that. We teach them, we don't do that in this family. And they'll go out and they'll parrot that. We don't do this. They don't really know why yet. They just know that's the family code. But that day, when you find that your child has come to the point where they get it, it's not just this is our family motto, this is our family rule, but they begin to put together the whole picture of who God is and why God expects us to do certain things, why he expects us to live in certain ways, and it becomes a reality to them that they are still continuing to do what you taught them to do or not do what you taught them not to do, but now they understand. They have developed and they have a reason why we do those things. How many of you know that one of the difficult parts of parenting is whenever your child says, why? And that scares us so much that we have developed because I said so. 
Because we are strained at trying to put this into words and, and uh, concept that they would grasp and understand. And we just think, why should I waste the next half hour talking myself blue in the face to get them to get this, when the important point right now at this stage of the life is just do what I say, don't ask questions. But we want them to get to the point where they understand why they're doing So that's, that's why Paul wrote what he wrote, what he did what he did. He wanted to provide a theological foundation for the spiritual children that could cause them to grow and not just commit a catechism to memory. These letters are of great value to us. Paul wrote about things that don't necessarily thrill us. I could preach on the stories of Jesus as I have for the past year and a half. And we get to the healing of the lame, the raising of the dead, opening of blind eyes and we try to put ourselves in that position and, we, and if we can if we allow ourselves to we can become quite inspired by these miracles then we go away thinking God we want to see those miracles in our church today now you read the writings of Paul you don't get any of that thrill it's none of these roller coaster things going on he's just talking to you and developing you the message of good news of course that's thrilling good news uh, to the to the poor uh, good news to the enslaved. Good news to the oppressed. That's inspiring. And of course, the death, burial, and resurrection, uh, the story of that is just unmatched. But Paul knew the church needed more. He needed some spinach in there. We can't thrive and we can't grow on the brief accounts of the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Those things have been established. And even the writer of the book of Hebrews says, those are fundamentals, those are rudiments. We can't keep going back to it. We have to move on to deeper things. So those are our foundations. We cannot dismiss them. We will not dismiss them. But now we have to build on that foundation. Now one rule to keep in mind as we get into Paul's writings, at least this first letter to the Corinthian church, is... Understand that his letters are timely and timeless. You might want to remind yourself of that. Maybe write that down and think on that for a little bit because that's going to be vital to understanding his writings. They are timely and they're timeless. And what I mean by that is this. When I say his letters are timely, it means that Paul was writing because of a specific situation. He was addressing specific issues. They needed, there was a congregation that needed to hear what he was saying. It was timely. It was appropriate. The context of this, he was writing to somebody who needed to hear something, and we are onlookers in that process. We're just looking at what he communicated to somebody else. But at the same time, they're timeless because not only can we read what he said to them, but we can make applications that we might be going through exactly the same thing. And we see a biblical precedent set here that tells us, well, that's how Paul instructed them. We can glean from that. So they are timeless as well. But sometimes the application is to the church. And sometimes the application is more appropriate to just an individual. And you have to also keep that in mind as we go through this. And we'll try and point that out as is necessary. Now I want to go to the book of Acts and look at the establishment of this church, the 18th chapter. And if you'll bear with me as I read uh, some significant portion of Scripture here. It says, After this, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. 
There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to depart from Rome. You see how all these things came together in one epic moment of Aquila and Priscilla being there and being the ones that received Paul in, but they only ended up by circumstances, uh, an edict of the Roman authorities that forced them to move in this area. But can you not see the hand of God in preparing this whole thing along the way? We marvel at how God brought this all together. When that happens to us in our lives, we get all excited when we think, I just met these people, but you know where they came from and what the background is and how we met, and it, isn't God wonderful how he worked that out? We just marvel at those things. Well, this is something to marvel about. And as a result of the circumstances, they were driven to this place where they, would, they were destined, really, to meet with Paul. Paul approached them. He worked in the same trade. They were all tent makers. So they had something in common. He stayed with them and worked with them helping them make tents because he had to have a little something to sustain himself. And he addressed both the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue every Sabbath, attempting to persuade him, which was the habit of Paul when he went into a new town, is the first thing he did was made his way to the synagogue in spite of the fact that God had really designed Paul to reach out to the Gentiles and this was a, a, a conflict between him and Peter as they discovered Paul was ministering to Gentiles and Peter couldn't understand this because they are the uncircumcision. You know, they are the ones that we, we this, this is for us. So there's a conflict there. But it's interesting, before Paul finally became completely committed to taking the gospel to the Gentiles, that he was still trying to go and take it to the Jews at the synagogue. So, here he is doing his normal thing. They come into town, he goes to the synagogue, he preaches, and he does this for several weeks. Let's continue fifth verse. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul became wholly absorbed with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When they opposed him, notice that, and reviled him, he protested by shaking his clothes and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. And the shaking of his clothes was a cultural thing that they had used to symbolize, I'm done, I wash my hands of you. That's kind of the way we would put it. But they did this physical gesture, this symbolic thing where they just shook their clothes. And he said, I'm done. This was one of those incidents where I had preached on one time a while back the time that Paul almost gave up, he was there at just at the point of quitting. And he was so frustrated that week after week he went to the synagogue and he didn't see any results. And not only did he not make any obvious inroads into that Jewish culture with his message, they turned on him. They protested. They opposed him. They reviled him. They ridiculed him. And finally, he just, Paul, Paul loses it at this point. We see him as a pretty even-tempered man, but suddenly he just loses it. He says, I'm done. I'm not messing with you people anymore. I'll go somewhere somebody appreciates what I've got to say. And then Paul left the synagogue and went to the house of a person named Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So, Right here, 
living hard against the synagogue, which implies that probably the buildings were squished right up against each other. Paul is preaching in the synagogue not having any obvious progress, fruit for his labor. And he explodes and says, I'm done. I quit. This is no good. I don't want to do this anymore. I'll go to the Gentiles. And suddenly, he finds out that the one man living right next to the synagogue has gotten saved, to put it in our vernacular, in our terms. Then it says Crispus, the president of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, Corinthians who heard about it believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul by a vision in the night, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent because I'm with you. Nobody's going to harm you because I have many people in this city. So he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, Corinth was a large city. It also helps to understand this city where Paul went and what he was walking into. Uh, the Grecian Corinth was a hugely prosperous and uh, famously wicked city, but it had gone defunct and nearly became a ghost town, certainly a shadow of what it used to be until the Roman Empire came along. And because of the logical situation of Corinth and uh, being on a major trade route, the Roman Empire allowed Corinth to grow again and become a hustling, bustling city, an incredibly wealthy city with industry. And at the same time, a wicked city as well. As we know in our culture, in our society today, the large, rich cities accommodate all kinds of evil as well. And this place, Corinth, was famous for their own version of the Olympics. Not quite as well known, uh, not as well known at all as the Roman Olympics, but every two years they put on their own games. And it was quite popular back then. The, the town of Corinth had a, an arena that seated 18,000 people. It's a pretty large arena for those days. And then they had a concert hall that could seat 3,000. They were regularly scheduling dramas and musical entertainment there. So it was quite a sophisticated city. And Gordon Fee, one of our uh, scholars, uh, highly respected scholars in the field, suggested that Corinth was the ancient equivalent of the modern-day New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. That might give you a mental connection on what we're looking at. So in the 18th chapter of Acts, Paul goes into this town, meets up with a couple of believers, Aquila and Priscilla, has a, a rapport with them, jumps in and helps them in their tent-making trade, and ministers at the synagogue, comes to the point of frustration, complete frustration, and threatening just to quit until he discovers he actually has made some progress. Progress he didn't see. Progress he didn't know. How many of you people know you can't see everything that you're doing for God? God knows, but we don't know. We get frustrated because we don't always see the progress that is being made. I know that sometimes, like the famous jar of pickles, you know, you work and work and work to open it. You hand it to somebody else and they pop it open. You say, well, yeah, sure, I did all hard work. You didn't think you were making any progress, but you just made the way for somebody else, right? 
like smashing the stone when you hit it with a, a sledgehammer and it's not budging, nothing's happening. And nobody knows all the hairline cracks that you've put in that thing when the next guy to pick it up and hits it, it smashes to pieces. Yeah, you did all the hard work, they get the glory. And working for God has a lot of the same uh, dynamics to it, that we work and we work and we work and we sow and we water, we've planted, we've done all the hard work. And then about the time we think we're, it's, nothing's going to happen and we go away, a nice rain shower comes along and everything pops out and the reapers come along and say, well, look what we found. And Paul finds out after he got so terribly frustrated and threatened to quit, there's a believer right next door. He finds out that the, the, the head of the synagogue has actually gotten saved. He didn't know that. Like Paul is, well, no, so why didn't you say something? You know, give me a wink, do something, let me know something's getting through to you. And not only did Crispus get saved, but he took the good news home and his family got saved. And not only did they get saved, the Bible says they had friends that began to get saved. So he lit a little fire there that was reaching out to the community in the city of Corinth, in this dark, wicked, vile place. The light of the gospel has been shined. The, the, the flare of the gospel, the flame of the gospel has been lit. And the fire is continuing, continuing to burn. And then Paul has this vision in the night where God comes down and tells him, don't get discouraged. I want you to keep on doing what you're doing. You won't be harmed. But then he says this, I have many people in this city. God knows how many people need what you have. He knows people that sit next to you where you work. He knows people that you encounter where you go, whether that's to the grocery store. He knows people in your neighborhood. God knows it. I've got a lot of people. What does he mean by that? That means that he knows their heart is ready. They're hungry. They're waiting for somebody to tell them the good news. And isn't it a crying shame if we miss those opportunities? When God declares from heaven, I have a lot of people, they're ready, go get them. And if we get so absorbed in ourselves that we can't stop and share the good news with somebody, we are missing the people that God knows is ripe and ready for this. Don't let us ever be guilty of missing the opportunities for the many people that God has that are ready to enter the kingdom. Let's share the good news. Let's not miss those opportunities. So Paul stays for another year and a half, evangelizing the lost and discipling his converts. This is how the church of Corinth was established. The church of Corinth is a little bit misleading. There was not a single building and a congregation that gathered in Corinth. Church in those days was so unlike our Americanized version. The church in Corinth was all the believers in the city, no matter where they worshipped. What a novel idea for the church, huh? We think so much about the church, and we start focusing on which one are you talking about? All of them. All who name the name of Jesus Christ, the church. This is just one branch of the church. But when we forget that, we become ingrown. We forget how big the church really is. Now, I was out in California for several years from the winter of 1990 through to uh, 
2004. While I was there, there was something that happened in Modesto, California. In that Assembly of God church there, they had a revival. And something exploded in that town. They had so many people getting saved. Night after night, week after week, the pastor went out and got all the other pastors together and said, we cannot handle the fruit of this. We're going to give you the names, the contact information, and we're going to pass it out to anybody who will take it, who will follow up, who will go and develop and mentor these people. Get them, grab them, bring them into your church. We don't care. We just don't want the fruit to fall to the ground and rot. And they all began to pull together around what was happening in this one church, but they spread it out so everybody now was participating in it. What happened there? And there was a book written about it. About it became known as the Church of Modesto. Because all the churches who would participate and drop their denominational barriers and lines and come together became the Church of Modesto. And we often wonder what could happen if we could be more than just a localized body of believers. So Paul writes to the church of Corinth, but there were so many little uh, house churches around there. They were all the same church. People, we think we're pretty clever in developing these modern things. That, in the book of Acts, 18th chapter, that was the original small groups. So Paul writes the letter and it goes to the city of Corinth and it has... It is circulated from one home congregation, house church, to another, and they all read this. Now, Paul lit this torch in this city. On the verge of giving up in discouragement, he holds on to one thing. I know I've got truth. I've got irrefutable truth about the Messiah. And he pleaded with his fellow Jews to heed the message, but they would not listen. And I want you to try to grab a hold of the frustration of Paul. I don't know that there's anything I can think of that frustrates me any quicker or many, maybe any deeper than when I am speaking incontrovertible truth to somebody and they tell me to that, my face, that's not true. You probably have found yourself in that position in, in any kind of circumstance where you know what you know what you know. And they just say, ah, I don't believe that. No, wait a minute, I'm telling you I was there. I don't believe it. What do you do? How do you convert somebody like that to the truth? And it doesn't have to be a spiritual truth. I understand people have a variety of opinions on certain matters. I know that. We have people who love cold weather and hate hot weather. And then we have others who love the hot weather and hate the cold weather. And who's right? I am. We have opinions about favorite foods. We have opinions about restaurants that somebody loves to eat there and the other people standing around, I would not step foot in that greasy spoon. We have opinions. Are you Dodge, Ford, or Chevy? Are you Packers or Bears, Cubs or Cardinals? We have opinions. But none of that is absolute truth because they're just opinions. But there is absolute truth, and Paul knows what he experienced. On the road to Damascus, to, uh, on, a, on a mission to continue his, his project of persecuting these people that call themselves Christians, the follower of Christ, 
He hates them. They are a threat to Judaism until Jesus appears to him. He's the only one that can see him. He's the only one that can hear him. But he knows what he knows what he knows. And when you get up from that experience... And you go and you tell somebody, this is my testimony. I was on the road to Damascus. I was about God's work. I was persecuting the Christians. I I was bent. I was sold on this mission. But Jesus appeared to me and convinced me I was wrong. And I'm here to tell you, you're wrong too. And they say, I don't believe that. Can you imagine how frustrating that is? We're not talking about opinion here. I know what I know what I know, and this is absolute truth. And they say, we don't believe any of that. We don't even believe your little story about being blind. No, no, we don't believe that. It's truth. And he is extremely frustrated that he tells the truth, and people don't believe him. He had marginal results. Sometimes in his ministry, he was violently beaten He'd go into a town, they'd chase him out. They'd beat him up and think he was dead and haul him out of town and throw him on the trash heap. And somehow he would pull himself together and walk away. So where's next? But then Paul has the breakthrough. And it becomes the foundation, the nucleus of the churches of Corinth, the church of Corinth. As believers begin to convert their family and their friends And a church is born. When we get into the book of Corinthians, we'll find out what became of that church that was birthed at that point. It's not pretty. But here's part of the problems that I'm going to address as we get into the end of today's sermon. Part of the problems in the Corinthian church stemmed from what converts brought into the church from their previous life. They had a lot of baggage, and you can imagine why. But they didn't necessarily park all their baggage at the door when they came in, just like people today. Well, can you blame them? We told them, you know, this is our song, Just As I Am, without one plea, come on in. But we're accepting the challenge of believing when people come in just as they are, that we're willing to deal with that to get them to where they should be. We accept that challenge. That's okay. Come as you are. But one of the frustrating things that I run into is whenever people are proud of their spiritual defects. Let me just pull one out of the air. I don't think it fits anybody in particular. I'm going to quit thinking because I might think of somebody. (laughs) But let's say somebody comes into the kingdom, into the body, and they start their Christian journey, their walk with the Lord. But they've got a horrible, violent temper. Or they've got, let's say, a filthy mouth. But instead of feeling any contrition for their spiritual defects, they say this, well, that's just the way I am. Now look, those of you who are listening today, take heed. Don't ever use that in my presence. Saying that's just the way I am is not good enough. We all know how you are. It's no excuse because coming to Christ means moving beyond what you are and becoming what he wants you to be. So you can't park there and justify your behavior by saying, that's just the way I am. 
Get over yourself. Let's move on. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Let's go through that transformation process. Let's just don't park at that level and say, I'm here just for the salvation. I don't want the Lordship. No, you got to have it all. So here come these people from the city of Corinth into the congregation, coming from obviously a very wicked place, a prosperous place. You brought prosperous people into the church. And the prosperous people just happened to be infected with characteristics and attitudes that developed in them from their Corinthian culture. And it's quite apparent as we read the letters to the Corinthian church what kind of problems the people of that congregation had. First of all, one thing you'll see that stands out in the Corinthian letters is they were very childish. They were very immature. Another thing is they were very arrogant. And Paul is the master of sarcasm. His letters dripped with sarcasm. Sometimes modern day pastors don't want to be too sarcastic. They're seen as being very rude and crude and uh, offensive. That didn't bother Paul. And we'll run into some of those as we get through his writings. But he's looking at these immature, arrogant people. And sometimes in his sarcasm, he said, well, look how great you are. But we apostles, we're, we're at the back of the line. You people, you're up front in the parade, but we're nothing. And these characteristics that were carried over from the Greek and Roman culture that were very prominent in that day, there was a culture in Corinth that was very rich in sophistry. And to explain what that means is they were great at the art of presenting fallacious arguments with the intent to deceive. They were just a bunch of deceivers, and they were very good at their craft. They could weave an argument about anything and just lie about it, but they wanted, their main goal was they wanted to win the argument. They would convince you no matter what they had to stoop to. This was a very much a part of that culture. It was acceptable. They were admired for being able to do that. And that's the kind of people that get saved that comes into the church. And they don't necessarily drop all those characteristics. Now bring that junk into the church and see what kind of a congregation you have to deal with. They want to be right at any cost, even if they have to make up their facts. They were a people that were very accustomed to class distinction in their Corinthian culture. It was acceptable to be in a social class and recognize uh, people of low, lower social class as not having a lot of worth because I'm, I'm in this echelon here. You're just down there. Bring that into the church. Make your whole congregation composed of people that used to be so class sensitive and sit them down and say, folks, glad you're here. From now on, we're not going to do that anymore. They're not going to change that day. You're going to have to pray them through to changing why they should not be like they were raised to be. Then you look at the fact that they were exposed to a lot of things in this gross, idolatrous, heathen culture. And the moral sensitivities, for all practical purposes, when they got saved and they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they didn't have any morals. You have to remember back when this was in the days of the Greek Corinthian culture there, which carried over into the Roman culture and influenced that both, both Corinths were the, were the hub of idolatry. There were idols everywhere. And they had uh, uh, 
temples devoted to sex gods and historians, some historians talking about a thousand temple prostitutes there. In the Greek culture, their religion was all built around immorality and prostitutes in the temple to minister to people. And these people come into the church and bring their baggage and their garbage. And that makes for a difficult church to pastor. They brought their arrogance. They brought their class distinctions. They brought the worldly mindset into the church. And they poisoned it. And Paul's writings in many, many different places, not only in the letters to the Corinthian church, but in other letters, Paul's writings are repetitive in, say, in, in promoting the importance of transformation. The importance of uh, let, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The importance of old things are passed away and all things are become new. The importance of being renewed by the transformation, the transforming of your mind. His letters are full of this, that you've got to change. It's a wonderful thing to come to know that Jesus came to die for your sins, but Paul developed this. It means when you come to a relationship with him and you begin to walk with him, you have to change. God expects us to be transformed from what we were to what he wants us to be. And I think we're looking at a lot of cheap salvation today. I think we're looking at mass crusades and mass altar calls where people just come up and, they, and they'll, they'll weep and they'll cry and they'll pray the sinner's prayer and they'll get a tract put in their hand and they'll go their way. But are we following up with discipleship that tells these people, that's great, you've got a great start. Glad you came to accept the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died for your sins. That's a wonderful thing. But you've got to change. You cannot remain the way you are. Not in please God. I know it's a process, but sometimes we make that process unnecessarily long. We just don't want to let go of our upbringing. We don't want to let go of our influences that we had while we were in the world. We want to bring them along with them, and we want to impact the church and the body with those things. But you can't do that. You've got to let those things be gone and learn a whole new way of thinking. If we've been trained to have a carnalistic, hellish worldview, and you come into the church where you're supposed to have a godly worldview, a biblical worldview, it takes turning your world upside down to what you begin to think like God wants you to think. So as we make our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, we see clear evidence Paul addressing these fundamental flaws in the Corinthian congregation. He shames them about their immaturity. You folks are still on milk, he says. I'm not talking to you. Don't get offended. You should have been digesting meat by now, and you're still on the bottle. What is going on? He rebukes their partisanship. He emphasizes the importance of continuously discovering God. And that's what Paul's theology is about. It's a journey of discovery. It's a journey of development. 
Are you ready for the journey? That's the question. Would you bow your heads?